Well, if you will, please take out your Bibles and in the Old Testament be turning with me in the book of Psalms to Psalm 11. Psalm 11 will be the text for our sermon this morning. Perhaps not one of the most familiar psalms in the Psalter to us, though no doubt one portion of it at least will be familiar to many of you because it appears frequently in evangelical discussions of cultural issues and the the way in which our society, especially in Western civilization, is becoming increasingly secularized. But Psalm 11 is, I think, a tremendously encouraging and empowering prayer of faith at a time when God's people feel surrounded, when they are under attack, when it might seem to be an occasion where fear ought to grip our hearts. And maybe we ought to be thinking about fleeing to the mountains and to the hills and finding refuge in a cave there. But instead, here, David and the Holy Spirit through David will call us to a stronger faith, to a greater hope, to rest ultimately in the sovereign God who rules over all creation. Hear now the word of God, that which is holy, inspired, and inerrant. Psalm 11. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In Yahweh I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh is in His holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, His soul hates. Upon the wicked He will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. And that is, in fact, the very idea here in Psalm 11. That when it may seem as though chaotic circumstances that are turned against the people of God in the world around us, as though though these circumstances may cause the purpose of God to fail, these are circumstances that we can face with faith, with peace in our hearts, and with courage, because we know ultimately, though the grass withers, though the flower fades, though heaven and earth pass away, God's Word will stand. God's purpose will be done. God's throne will not be shaken. Now it is uncertain when Psalm 11 was written. Many commentators assume that it may have been penned around the time when King Saul's attention was turned against David, when Saul began to view David, who had been one of his celebrated military commanders, uh, he began to view him instead as a rival, began to perceive that it would be God's purpose to put David one day on Israel's throne, and he actually began an effort to kill David, not only throwing a javelin at him in in the kingly court, but even mustering his army and sending them out into the wilderness, trying to hunt David in the mountains so that he might be killed. David spent several years of his life as a fugitive, being hunted by Saul, seeking refuge in rocks and, and, and mountains, and even among the enemy nations that surrounded Israel's territory. And it may be that the experience that is described here in Psalm 11 is coming out of that 
point of his life. You will recall that during that time, though David is having to run for his life, he's still actively involved in doing good. In fact, he is seemingly more concerned about the security of the cities of Israel than the king of Israel, Saul, was. He goes and he fights against the Philistines at the city of Kilah and saves that city, even though he is told definitively by the Spirit of God that if you do that, Saul is going to come down and the men of this city will not protect you from him. David puts himself regularly in harm's way to do the will of God at a time when you could easily rationalize doing otherwise. And it may be that moment when friends of David were saying, flee, get away, go hide in the mountain and don't come out. Don't put your head outside the cave until Saul is dead and buried. And then we'll see what God is going to do. But David says, by contrast, no, in the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I trust. Now, I am persuaded that the first three verses of this psalm are frequently misunderstood and that the punctuation in our English Bible sometimes reflects this misunderstanding or in some ways contributes to it. Now, admittedly, the first three verses of the text could be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Some commentators, a minority of commentators, would take the latter part of verse 1 and all of verses 2 and 3 as a taunt by David's enemies and and his response to that taunt in verses 2 and 3. He says, no, the, the wicked are indeed bending the bow, but it's you who are mocking me that are the wicked ones. Now, the New King James reflects this idea. It only places quotation marks, you'll notice, around the final clause in verse 1. Flee as a bird to your mountain. That's the only place that quotation marks appear. And then they put verses 2 and 3, presumably, in the mouth of David. But if you're reading out of another translation, perhaps the ESV or some other English versions, you'll see that the punctuation differs in different translations. That's because the original manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments don't have any punctuation features. This is a decision that has to be made by translators and editors, and there's admittedly some ambiguity. Sometimes you might view a portion of the text as a quotation by another speaker and another editor or translator might disagree with that judgment. The punctuation marks in your Bible are not inspired. They're not infallible. The text of Scripture is inspired and infallible. But we have to wrestle with whether or not the punctuation accurately reflects what's going on in any given passage. And in some versions, like the ESV, you'll see that the latter part of verse 1 and the entirety of verses 2 and 3 are all contained in quotation marks. And I think that is probably a better way to punctuate this passage. Sometimes, even sincere believers are overwhelmed by fear. And I take the latter part of verse 1 and the entirety of verses 2 and 3 as the very sincere, well-meant, but fearful advice given to David by his friends. They are the ones who were saying, flee as a bird to your mountain, for look, there are the wicked. They're they're setting up an ambush against you. They're going to shoot in secret against you. The world is falling apart, and if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It'll all be for naught. I think this is the sincere but panicked expression of those who are presumably seeking David's well-being. They want to seek his safety. They don't want to harm him in any way, but they know that there are many enemies who would desire to do that very thing. And yet, even though sincere believers may be overtaken by fear, we must remember that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but rather of power and of love 
and of a sound mind. When you feel fear building within your hearts, you know the Spirit of God didn't put it there. When we talk about the fear of God, we're not talking about that type of fear that that quakes before the arrows of the enemy. The the kind of fear that that would prompt us to run and hide in the mountains or to despair when the foundations of civilization seem to be falling to the ground. And remember that this issue with fear is not strictly a rational or doctrinal issue. It would be easy for me to take you through passage after passage that says, do not be afraid. In fact, this is the most common thing that angelic visitors say to human beings in the Bible when they appear to them. The first thing they have to say is, do not be afraid, because every person who is visited by an angel and actually recognizes that it is an angel immediately feels fear. It's not a comforting thing to be in the presence of a heavenly being. And so over and over and over, the Bible says, do not be afraid. But this isn't just an intellectual issue. If I tell you you don't have anything to fear, you're not going to stop fearing. If I look across the table at my wife at dinner and I say, honey, hold still, don't be afraid, what's she immediately going to experience? Fear. Because she knows I wouldn't say, don't be afraid, unless there was something actually she ought to be afraid of. This is an emotional experience that doesn't respond immediately to teaching or to additional information. We can be easily shaken and made fearful by external circumstances. We are subject to their influence upon our hearts and our lives. In fact, human beings have a built-in flight or fight response to danger. Now, sometimes people will simply be paralyzed when they are afraid. They'll they'll lock up and they won't be able to respond in any way. But most often, they are either going to run or they are going to fight. But the psalm that we're looking at today offers a different set of alternatives. Here in Psalm 11, we see that we have a choice between flight or faith. We can panic and flee, at least in our hearts, when our enemies arise. Or we can trust God and rest in His sovereignty. And so we see the psalm begin in verse 1 with this great confession of faith. In Yahweh, I take refuge. Or as the New King James renders it, in the Lord, I put my trust. David does not say, I will try to trust in God. He doesn't say, to the best of my ability, I trust in the Lord. He makes a firm affirmation, a firm statement. He says, I trust God. Now, does that mean that David does it perfectly? Obviously not. But is he committed to doing so? Is he aspiring to do so faithfully? Absolutely. The pressure of external threats from his enemies is causing David to take stock of his faith. And that is what pressure does. It forces us to confront who we really are. You see, when you are on the practice field, you can feel pretty good about yourself. You're not under any more pressure than you allow yourself to experience. But when you get into the battle on game day, you are no longer in control of those external circumstances and forces that are arrayed against you. And you find out very quickly your vulnerabilities. You find out very quickly the fear that you didn't know was in your heart. You feel a sense of nervousness maybe, a a sense even of panic, because you realize that you're up against something that you may not be equal to. We find out whether we will quit or whether we will persevere. 
And more than that, trials require us to take stock of what we actually believe. Not what we say we believe when times are easy, but rather what we really believe. And you see that in how you respond to adversity. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 10, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That's a hard passage to wrestle with. I don't want to believe that that's true. I want to believe I'm better than the day that I fainted on the day of adversity. I'm better than that. I'm stronger than that. But the day of adversity may prove otherwise. We say God is sovereign and He is in control of everything that happens. He works all things together for the good of His people. And yes and amen, that's what the Bible says and that's what the church confesses. But do you really believe that when the doctor says cancer? Or when it is your child that is close to death in the hospital? Or when your enemies lie about you? Your family and your friends forsake you? And it feels as if the whole world would be better off if you were not even in it? Hardship forces us to face the question, do I really believe the things that I say I believe? When my heart is gripped with fear, I have a choice to make whether to embrace that fear or rather to embrace God by faith. There is a difference between saying orthodox things about God and actually taking refuge in Him. A lot of people who say orthodox things about God do not take refuge in Him. There's a difference between participating in a religious tradition and actually resting in the God who made and sustains the world. It is easy to talk about God's sovereignty and providence and His loving kindness and His preservation of His people when we're in isolation. It's easy to be profound when we are in a sterile environment. But put that theology into the middle of a battlefield and see how it looks. If wars were fought when soldiers were well-rested and comfortable and cool and had all the time that they needed to acquire their target and line up their shot, then it wouldn't be much like war at all. It would be just like another day at the firing range. It would be like training. And this is why in military and law enforcement training, they will take soldiers and law enforcement officers and they'll have them run sprints or run up and down stairs, or, or crawl through various obstacles, and then present your weapon and fire. You say, but I don't shoot as well then. Exactly. But it's far more like the reality that you'll experience one day. We need to understand that David, when he says, I take refuge in God, he's not describing how he feels at that moment. He's not saying, I feel just fine because I believe the Lord. No, he may be feeling any number of ways. He may be feeling very stressed. He may be feeling afraid. I think we assume that because David is this mighty warrior, he never felt fear. But I think the experience of many seasoned warriors would say otherwise. He may have felt any number of ways, but his opening confession is a decision. It is a declaration of commitment. It is a determination, not an emotion. This is not about how you feel. This is about what is true. And this is about what is right. And this is about what you are committed to doing no matter how you feel. No matter what your circumstances may be. And you say, but, but David, what if? It doesn't matter. What if doesn't matter? What if the cancer is terminal? It does not matter. What if my child does not survive? It does not matter. What if I cannot financially recover and I do lose the house? 
What if my loved ones never speak to me again? It does not matter. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not trying to downplay the reality and the severity of the suffering that the people of God experience. David is literally sleeping on the ground, hiding in caves, because there is a man with an army trying to kill him. And in one sense, this kind of adversity does matter. When your child dies, it matters. When you lose your home, it matters. When you are sick and facing certain death, it matters. Of course it does. But it does not matter in terms of the commitment of your faith. That's what we're saying. Those external circumstances do not change in any respect what our commitment must be, and that is to take refuge in the Lord. My circumstances do not determine whether or not I trust. They do not determine in whom I trust. That trust is fixed upon the Lord no matter what. Because faith is not a feeling. And unfortunately, that's how we sometimes think about it. It may not be how we verbally defined it, but it's how we practically define it in our lives. And on days where things are going well, I feel like I'm just full of faith. And on days where the whole world is falling apart, I can't find God no matter where I reach for Him. But faith is the work of God's grace. It is a decision expressed in action. It is a decision to trust God even though all the forces of hell or Mordor are arrayed against me. It is a decision to rest in the perfect will and work of Jesus Christ and to know that nothing can befall me apart from His good plan and purpose. To know that even if I am overtaken by trouble, I cannot be overcome. That even if I fall dead on the field of battle, my soul shall still triumph eternally in Jesus Christ. It's a commitment that says the devil cannot harm me. He just can't. He can hurt my body. He can destroy my body. He can take my earthly life. He cannot harm me in any way. Neither can the world. Neither can the opposition. Neither can false brethren. Nothing that I face in this life can harm me because I take refuge in the Lord. And this is why we must pray the Psalms and sing the Psalms and recite the Psalms over and over because it doesn't matter how you feel on any given day. What matters is that you can say with David, in the Lord I put my trust. Not I'll try to, not I ought to, Not, I hope that by God's grace, I'll improve in this area. Of course, we all hope by God's grace to improve in this area. No, you and I are praying and singing and confessing with David by the Holy Spirit, in the Lord I put my trust. Period, full stop. That is my choice by God's grace. That is my determination. I am affirming that is what I will do. So help me God. I will trust Him. Not myself. Not my resources, not my own strength. I will trust Him. And I will do it today, and I will do it tomorrow, and I will do it to the very end of my life. Now what we see in the latter part of verse 1, and through the end of verse 3, I'm persuaded, is the people's panic and fear in response to these circumstances. Now again, I, I think that this is the proper way to understand this psalm. 
These people are not taunting David when they say, flee as a bird to your mountain. They're actually offering him well-intentioned advice. But their response is in contrast to the strong faith that David affirms. And the irony is that if this is the proper interpretation, then the one part at least of this psalm that is familiar to virtually all of you has been misapplied in many of the cases that it has been used. Verse 3 is often used as a, as a rallying cry. Oh, Christian, rise up. Oh, church, rise up. Western civilization is falling apart, and if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I don't want to say that there's not a point to be made there. Obviously, if the foundations of morality and spirituality and the, the value of the human person and the integrity with which we are to conduct ourselves in the public square, if all of that's destroyed, then that's a very bad thing. But do you see the irony of citing that as the rallying cry in culture wars? When in fact, in Psalm 11, this is the cry of fear that is in contrast to the faith that David is confessing by the Holy Spirit of God. They're saying, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David is saying in response, God is on his throne. What do you think they can do? Well, they're attacking the foundation, sure, that's not a good thing. But do you realize they're picking a fight with the creator of heaven and earth? They're picking a fight with the God whose eyes watch all men, whose eyes test all men, who will bring all men into judgment and rain fire and brimstone upon the ungodly? And you're worried about them attacking the foundations? Really? See, that's that's what's going on in Psalm 11. When danger appears, some people will freeze, some people will flee, and some people will fight. They will press forward. Some men run away from danger and some men run towards it. And I want to be careful not to turn this text into some kind of a macho rant, but I do want you to see the masculine virtue running through this text. And I don't want to be misunderstood when I say that. I I feel like I'm giving just endless caveats today. (laughs) Ladies, when I say it's masculine virtue, that doesn't mean this passage is just for boys or about boys. Because if we're preaching through 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 or any number of other passages, then I'm going to be talking to all of the men folk about the feminine virtues that they are supposed to be inculcating. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, pastors are supposed to be gentle like nursing mothers, which is awkward. <laughs> but the Bible also tells all believers, male and female, to quit ye like men at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And that rendering by the King James Version actually brings out the original word better than more interpretive translations do that say, be strong, be brave. Yes, but literally, Paul is taking the word for man and he's saying, be manly. Finish like a man, all of you ladies. All of you ladies are to finish like men, just like all of you men are supposed to be gentle like mothers The reality is there are feminine virtues which typify qualities of the Christian life, and there are masculine virtues which do so. Most women, not all, would rather avoid conflict than do battle. Most, not all. Psalm 11 is about the masculine virtue of courage under fire, and that is a virtue that many unbelieving men lack, but which all of God's daughters are called to cultivate. So you are to be more manly in this respect than the unmanly men in the world. There will be people in your life that tell you to run when danger and difficulty appears. And many parents, many mothers, and even some fathers have tried to do this with their children. This is the approach to child rearing that many people take. 
They want to save their children from hard things. And I sympathize with that. I can't even imagine allowing my children to do some of the things that I got to do. But nonetheless, you need to realize that that is a mistake. The generation that grew up during the Depression went on to win World War II. That generation survived rationing and the horrors of war and came home from the war determined that their children would never suffer and sacrifice as they had had to do. And their children never had to. Their children are the ones we call the baby boomers. They were the youth of the 60s. Many of them were dedicated to free love and drugs. They never suffered or sacrificed like their parents' generation had. And as a result, our nation has never recovered from the harm that they have done. And it was a well-intentioned error. Who doesn't want their child to have a better life than they had? If you grow up during the Depression, you don't want your children to have to grow up that way. If you send off your fathers and sons and brothers to war to the horrors of the Pacific Theater, you don't want your children to have to go through that. But the problem is that carriage, uh, character rather, is forged in fire. You learn courage under pressure. You do not develop character wrapped in bubble wrap. The response in verses 1 through 3 is well-intentioned, it is sincere, it is kind, and it is completely wrong. It is the fruit of fear and not of faith. It is a display of panic and not of piety. It is the kind of advice that weakens hands and knees rather than instilling strength and courage. And you don't need to be that kind of parent to your children. And the church doesn't need those kind of children growing up and taking leadership. And our nation doesn't either. Do not be that kind of brother or sister to your other brothers and sisters sitting in the congregation. When people are going through adversity, you can sympathize, you can support, but in a way that imparts strength and helps your brothers and sisters to stand, not that says, we should avoid all suffering, you need to flee. Help them to stand by faith, help them to stand by grace, help them to stand with courage to the very end. In verse 4, this is how David responds to those who would give him this advice. How can we stand when an army of orcs has assembled against us? When secularists are destroying every vestige of our religious heritage? And when a concerted effort is being made and succeeding in some sectors to compromise believers and compel them to bow the knee to false gods or to be permanently excluded from the public square? How can God's people stand up under those kind of circumstances? Well, we don't stand because we are strong or capable or even because we are courageous. We stand because we know who sits on the throne. We don't have to flee because we know who's on the throne. The Lord is in His holy temple. And even if the world is a very unholy place, God still rules over it. Yes, the world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and we see evidence of that all around us. But the devil is not ultimately in control. Yahweh is. He is not in control. He is a dog on a chain. He can bark, he can growl, he can bite, but he cannot reach one inch farther than the Lord allows. And the Lord only allows him to attack and threaten for a greater purpose and for a limited time. You have to know that. 
You have to know I don't have to fear the lions by the path because they are chained. And that doesn't mean that nothing bad can ever happen to me. It does mean that ultimately nothing can ever harm me. Our confidence must not be in ourselves, but rather in the Lord who reigns over all, who sees all, who watches all, and who will judge all on the last day. And so what does David say in verses 5 and 6? The Lord seeks out the righteous man, but loathes the wicked one who loves injustice. God does not take a passive attitude toward evildoers who seek to do harm to his children. Those evildoers may appear to prevail for a time. There certainly have been moments when it seemed that all hope was lost, when even the greatest saints fell on the field of battle. We're not suggesting that because God is in charge and in control, because He is enthroned and because He will judge, that nothing bad will ever happen to a believer. Scripture, history, and experience conclusively demonstrate otherwise. Do you remember the seeming tragedy of Abel's death? or the prophet Isaiah's, or King Josiah's, or John the Baptist's? Do you remember the stories of the martyrs, Stephen, the Apostle James, and the countless martyrs whose lives ended in brutal ways beyond the record of the New Testament? In every one of those stories, God was seeking out and testing His righteous servants. He was putting them into the fire not to consume them, but to purify and prove them. And you see what kind of a man Stephen was in the way that he died. He died like a believer. He died in a courageous manner. He was praying for the souls of his enemies even as they crushed his chest and skull with large rocks. And one day there will be a reckoning for that and for every other deed like it. David says, upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. That is what awaits violent, ungodly men. You're panicking about them, and God is telling you, I've already got that taken care of. You are so worried about what they're going to accomplish, and what they're going to accomplish is ending up in hell. That's their destiny. My judgment will come upon them. What are you worrying about? Why are you afraid? People don't like to think about God's anger and His fury or the doctrine of hell, but how would you feel if your child was violated or attacked or harmed or killed? And as twisted and imperfect as our own responses would be, they are a dim echo of the perfect justice and holy wrath that we carry as image bearers of God. You see, that righteous indignation at such evil is not the result of our fallen nature. It's the result of our created nature. It's the fallen nature that has simply distorted it. Would a father be just who allows his children to be harmed and simply said nothing? Two weeks ago, as we were studying Psalm 3, we talked about the disaster that came into David's family and life because he failed to punish his son Amnon, who raped his sister Tamar. Creation cannot bear that kind of injustice. It can't. And if you think that being spiritually minded means adopting some kind of position of polite passivity or neutrality towards evil in this world, then you do not know the Scriptures nor the character of God. This psalm is talking about God raining fire and brimstone on the heads of people who do things like that. 
And that is perfectly holy and just. It's right. It's good. And in the Psalms, we're taught to pray, O Lord, bring that day. Creation cannot bear that injustice, and God certainly will not. There will be a day of judgment. But the triumph of truth on that day does not depend on me prevailing at any particular moment or in any particular context. And so you're watching the news and you're looking at the world around you or you're experiencing difficulty in your family or you're looking at the broader church or you're looking at this congregation and you're thinking this is the moment, this is the most significant moment in the history of the world and if everything goes sideways at this point then all hope is lost and that is never true. It's never been true. You and I, from a temporal standpoint, may recognize there are significant moments in the history of this world. But it's never true that everything hangs in the balance because God has already determined the outcome. The battle does not depend on me. The battle belongs to the Lord. And that is why I can be patient. That is why you can endure. You can continue to trust God. I don't enjoy injustice. I don't want to see it in the world. I hate it. I don't enjoy suffering. I want it to stop. I want it to be over, but one day it will be. And we know that. And we can rest in that. And so David, in verse 7, closes the psalm by making these three affirmations. Truths about God and about the favor He bestows upon those who are righteous in His sight. He says, the Lord is righteous. He is righteous, but He would not be if He overlooked our sin. You see, it's not just the really bad people that God's anger is turned against. The Lord is righteous, and therefore He cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness. He hates sin. And the sad reality is that no matter how much we may now love God, no matter how much we now seek to please Him, no matter how sorry we are for our sins... We are all sinners, past and present. And because God is righteous, His wrath would be turned against us, rightly, justly. How can we escape the burning coals and cup of judgment that is appointed for sinners and be accepted as righteous in God's sight? It's not by saying we're sorry. We all should be sorry for our sins, but being sorry doesn't change what we did. It's not by trying harder. We all should try harder to live for God and be obedient to His law. But no matter how hard we try, we have not succeeded in the past. We can't change that. And we're not going to succeed perfectly in the present either. We're going to continue to fall short. The only way that judgment can be avoided is by the sacrifice of another. Having a substitute to stand in our place, to accept the penalty of our crimes and to provide righteous blood, which can not only wash away our iniquities, but provide a righteous cover for our lives. The Lord is righteous. Are you righteous? Well, it depends on what you mean. If you're asking, am I perfectly righteous in myself, in my own character, in my moral behavior, then obviously not. If you're asking, do I strive for righteousness? Strive to live with integrity and in obedience to God's law? Well, yes, but I consistently fall short. That's my desire. That's my endeavor. But every day I fail in that endeavor. But if you're asking, am I righteous in God's sight in terms of His judgment 
and in the heavenly courts, then the answer is yes, absolutely, perfectly, completely righteous, without even a shadow of stain. And it's not because of me. It's not because of you. It's not because of anything that is true of you or anything that you've ever done or ever will do. It's because we have received through faith the righteousness of another, as Paul says in his letter to the Philippians. We have been accounted as righteous for the sake of Christ. And therefore we are accounted by God as righteous for the sake of what Jesus has done, not based on our own performance. The Lord is righteous. He also loves righteousness, the psalm says. Righteous deeds, in other words. He loves righteous attitudes and actions. He loves righteous words and ways. He loves to see His people putting their trust in Him when it is hard to do so. He loves to see His people submitting to His will when it would be easier to give in to pride and selfishness. Now, we know that we can't do that apart from grace. We know that we don't do that well at any given point in our lives. It's not our own goodness, it's not our own effort that produces the fruit of righteous behavior. But brothers and sisters, let me encourage you not to think so much about your sin that you fail to recognize that God loves the obedience that He sees in you. He loves the righteous life that He sees in you because He's the one doing it. And if you act as if God doesn't love that, then you're saying something about Him, not about yourself. This... This very sincere but misguided modesty. Oh, I, I, I never do anything right. Well, I, I mean, that's not quite true. Because God is at work within you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. You don't do anything perfectly, and I don't either. But God is pleased when you seek to be obedient to Him. He's pleased by righteous deeds. Oh, I know your righteousness is like a filthy rag, but the good news is God measures your attempts at righteousness through the righteousness of Christ. And he loves what he sees. It is the fruit of his work. It is imperfect, yes, but he will bring it to completion and perfection one day. And if you ever wonder what the value is of sacrificing and serving and submitting to God, then remember that your father loves to see it when you do those things. He loves to see it. He's pleased by that. You say, but there's just no point because I do it so poorly. Yes, but he is pleased because you are his child. And because He loves you, He loves what you do when you seek to be obedient to Him. Now the last line in Psalm 11 could actually be translated in one of two ways. It's not any textual variant in the original uh, manuscripts. It's it's just simply a question of how you arrange the, the subject and object here. In this case, it could mean that God's countenance beholds the upright... Or it could mean, the upright behold his face. Either way, it amounts to pretty much the same thing. The righteous are going to be in the presence of God. He will look upon them with love and favor. They will look upon him with awe and wonder. Both of these ideas are clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. In this context, I would probably lean a little bit to the latter. Because what you're seeing in this text is the promise that God gives to His people. He says, the wicked are only going to ever see my fury. That's all they're ever going to see of me. But you're going to see my face. And isn't that how the Bible reassures us in the very closing chapter of the New Testament Scriptures? Revelation chapter 22, they shall see His face and His servant shall serve Him. The beatific vision. 
we will behold the face of God in the glorified person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we trust God when enemies are at the gates and the foundations appear to be crumbling? We can trust God because we know that those foundations cannot be destroyed. Let the secularists and unbelievers try as they might. We can pray against them. We can work against them. But the battle doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. Those foundations cannot be destroyed because the Lord reigns over all and He will judge the world in righteousness on the last day. We will suffer, yes, and we may be overtaken by evil, but we will not be overcome. In the end, we will behold the face of God in the person of our Lord Jesus. We will see Him, the One who looks on us now with love and mercy. And may God give us strength not to flee, but to stand in faith by grace and to endure.